Welcome back to the Starbase Indie Podcast, where we talk to people who are inspired by Star Trek or science fiction to work towards a hopeful future. The episode you are about to hear was recorded during our live event in November of 2023. Thank you for listening. So this is our Writing Diverse Worlds panel. And let's start by having our panelists introduce themselves. So, Mohammed, do you want to go first? Sure. Uh, my name is Mohammed Noor. I'm a professor of biology at Duke University, uh, and I'm an occasional science advisor for some of the Star Trek shows. But um, I, I'll say up front, I've never written a science fiction uh, book myself, but I've written a non nonfiction book about science fiction, and I occasionally have advised other people who are writing fiction. Uh, my name is Maurice Broadus. I'm a science fiction and fantasy author. I've written uh, about 18 books, had over 100 short stories published. I'm also the resident Afrofuturist at the uh, Kepler Institute here in town. I'm John Scalzi. I'm a straight white man. <laughs> I'm James McGrath, also a straight white man. Uh, I'm a professor at Butler University and have mostly written nonfiction about science fiction and other topics. I'm in religious studies. Uh, but Writing about science fiction and teaching about it led me to do some writing of science fiction, which also led to me writing some historical fiction, um, exploring things about ancient history that intersect with religion in my field as well. So what is your favorite example of a character or culture or creature that you have created or contributed to the creation of? And what is it that you were exploring with that character, creature, culture, that, that example? Can we start? Sure. Um, well, I mean, for books, not so much, but for, for Star Trek itself, it would be um, in Species 10C for Star Trek Discovery Season 4. Um, the, the problem that was brought to us, and this was a group of us, it wasn't just me, the problem that was brought to us is we need to have a truly alien alien, something where as, as they try to communicate with them, the universal translator will not work. So my suggestion to them is I said, well, you know, we tend to think of things in the context of, of sound in terms of our communication. However, lots and lots of animal species out there use chemical communication. So I proposed that in there. So there was a long discussion after that about working out like what it, what would the mode of chemical communication be. So I suggested hydrocarbons, things like that. So there was a lot of working things out both with the visual aspects to that as well as what that would do. Fortunately, there were some linguists who were also involved because like, I am not a linguist, so it was a good collaboration where the linguists would then change that. Basically, they said, give me an alphabet. So I, I produced the alphabet, and then they would come together and say, okay, this is how we can make it into a language. So very collaborative effort. So it's, what, what's the thing that we've created that we are most proud of? Or? Yeah. Okay. Um, I'll go for the, <laughs> it's always the current project. Um, so uh, so I've, uh, I'm in the middle of a science fiction trilogy called Astra Black, and so book one is out uh, called Sweep of Stars, and it's all about, a, it's an, an intentional uh, pan-African culture in a galactic community. And uh, I'm, I'm proud about that because of, uh, and I, I've shared this in previous panels, the, the year and a half of world building that went into this. Um, and what it looked like to talk to the elders in our community, what it looked like to talk to my neighbors uh, and, and sort of dream alongside them to, to create this world of, uh, based on what, is it, what would, could the world look like if we win in, in our struggles against uh, oppressive systems and, and all of our community organizing, what is the world we would like to create? What could that look like? And so doing that sort of dreaming uh, beside my neighbors 
uh, resulted in, in basically doing all this world building for for the series, but then it also it was twofold. So one, we have this these uh, ooh, here's what education could look like, and here's the the role of art and science in the world, and, and here's what a, 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 an economic system could look like, or what governance could look like. So we have all these things cast in front of us. But then what I what I really enjoyed was how that then impacted the work we were doing in the community, because now we're like, well, if that's the end goal. Yeah, why can't we start working towards that now? What do the steps look like now to put in a place in order to work towards that? And then as we start putting those things into place, then you know it, it sort of becomes this feedback loop of, well, now we get to adjust the dream and do these tweaks along the way. And so that's probably the thing I've, I've been most pleased with and something I've done. Uh, in terms of diversity, I think the one world that uh, I've created that was world built out to such a significant extent is the one that's in my lock-in series, where 1% of the population is afflicted with this uh, uh, syndrome that's called uh, Hayden's disease, uh, which locks them into their bodies. Um, so their brains are working, but they are not otherwise not able to move or speak or communicate. And because of basically a Manhattan uh, project style um, effort, uh, they have created ways for the folks who are locked in to communicate, and not only to communicate, uh, but also to uh, integrate and uh, take part in uh, society through the use of uh, android bodies that are called threeps after C3PO. Uh, and uh, what was really interesting about doing that is building a community that previously had not existed, but was modeled after uh, a number of communities that I that I am adjacent to. I have a very good friend of mine who is a, deeply a part of the um, of the deaf community, uh, and over the course of knowing her for literally 40 years now, um, we've talked about so many of the things that are going on with the the deaf community that are specific to the community itself. But not only that, but also the question of is what is seen as a disability by others actually a disability or the mechanism through which a new culture is uh, emerging? Um, and those are themes that I also reflected within the Hayden community because in one sense, you could easily say this is a disability. You're not able to communicate unless you have this neural network in your head. You're not able to take part in society unless you are walking around in these threeps. Um, but the community in and of itself has developed its own style of communication, its own style of dealing with each other, and its own way of looking at the rest of the world. And in building that out, um, it becomes its own um, it collective. It becomes its own group. It becomes uh, its own group of people with its own set of goals. Um, so in terms of that and looking, like I said, um, at the communities that inform um, the lock-in world and the Hayden community itself, I think is probably the thing that I've done that is most on target for this particular panel. Uh, I think I'll just mention uh, my my most recent story um, is called In Earth's Backyard, um, and it features, uh, I, I'm gonna assume spoilers are okay. Uh, uh, there's a, a ship that's on its way to Mars as part of a terraforming effort. that's um, going to be just at the very beginning, and they discover that something is actually polluting the atmosphere 
uh, from their perspective with carbon monoxide. And it turns out some other entities have come there and are trying to transform the planet to meet their needs. And uh, mostly, I mean, I thought that was, you know, I did check with biologists to ask, okay, is this going to be like, people are going to be like, no. But uh, mostly interested in getting at the question of how we uh, tend to assume that if a, a, there's some territory and it's not being utilized and it's closer to us than to anyone else, then we have some sort of right to it. Um, if others get there first, does that mean, you know, and so how do we navigate some of those kinds of things? And so um, navigating um, neighbors where you might not even breathe the same air, um, yeah, gives a good chance to think about diversity. Um, Okay, the biologist. Yeah, okay. Thumbs up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Very creative. We had this question on a panel that Maurice was on earlier this weekend, so we're going to ask it again in here. When you're trying to balance writing that is different than yourself, how do you balance exploring diversity without tokenizing or appropriating or, you know, how do you do that in a way that's a force for good instead of a force for evil? Is that the right way to ask it? Sure. Um, I'll, I'll go first, speaking as the straight white man. Um, well, it's not official until a straight white man has said it. So. That's exactly right. <laughs> right. Um, one of the things that I go back to uh, is something that Mary, uh, Marianne Mohanraj wrote uh, where uh, she was writing, she was talking about writing the other, right? right? Um, and one of the things that she acknowledged is that for a lot of people uh, who are like a straight white man, uh, but almost anybody, uh, when you write the other, the person who is not you, um, you know, there can be hesitancy, there can be concern, there can be the thing that you are, you know, worried, so worried about screwing it up that you don't do it. Uh, and she had the, she basically had a three-step thing, which is you have to, right? If you want to actually reflect the world, uh, the world is not just made up of people who look like you, right? Um, second of all, you're going to screw it up. And you're going to screw it up because it is not your community, it is not your lived experience, it is not your, it's not your world, it's not your daily, uh, daily life. Um, and three, um, you, uh, when you screw it up, uh, you uh, need to get back up on that horse and do it again, which is not to, uh, uh, which is not to say that. Um, you should not learn from the mistakes that you made. You absolutely should make. The, you should absolutely learn from those mistakes. Uh, the the secret is you should not make the same mistake twice, right? Um, and that is uh, a thing that you really need to be aware of. If you are going to write about uh, someone who is outside of your lived experience, there's going to be some nuance. There's going to be some issue. There's going to be something that you just completely didn't know. It's going to happen. Um, and so when someone who has that lived experience, who does uh, on a day-to-day -base, day basis come to you, um, hopefully in a manner of you know, being helpful, but even if not, like you know, what you do with that information is not immediately get defensive about, well, no, I did as well as I could. Just be like, oh, okay, now I know better. And then the next time you do it, you incorporate that information. Uh, and like I said, so that if you make another mistake, it's a whole new mistake unrelated to the one that you've made before. Because if you have been told and you make the same mistake, 
that's when they're like, we can write you off because we know you're not listening. And again, with the lock-in series, uh, I went in knowing that there were things about uh, writing about disability or writing about um, th that particular sort of community that I was going to get wrong because I'm able-bodied. I'm not locked into my brain. Um, and, uh, and indeed, uh, some folks who have, are members of the deaf community or uh, folks who are paraplegic or quadriplegic uh, came in and said, just so you know, here are things that you didn't know. And I was like, this is excellent. This is awesome. Thank you. And like I said, then the second book came out, and I didn't make the same mistakes. Right. Yeah, I call that fail better next time. Right. <clears throat> and uh, as someone who's failed often, uh, I'll go next. Um, so the, the, the whole idea of writing the other, like we, I have to write the other because otherwise all my stories will be populated by insecure, nerdy black guys, <laughs> right? So at some point I have to write the other. And so uh, my, my approach tends to be, and this, this is my posture, even when I'm writing about black people, my posture is I tend to, I, I tend to write as the invited outsider. Um, and that allows me, and, and what I've realized about that, especially when writing about black people, is I'm, I, it's, it's about the posture of, 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 that I'm coming at the work. And so by creating the space of I'm an invited outsider, it's sort of, it's, there's this sort of communal invitation that gets extended. I'm inviting all of us into this journey alongside one another. Um, so that being said, I'm, I'm thinking about... Um, There is, a, there is work that has to be done when you do this, right? And so I'm, I'm thinking of uh, when I wrote my novella, Buffalo Soldier, and, and it's in my Pimp My Airship universe, so in that world, America lost the Revolutionary War, uh, still remains a colony of England, and so and then in this world, Jamaica's its own superpower, because my mom's Jamaican, and that's a whole thing, but <laughs> Jamaica's a superpower. Um, and so I was writing this tale of these Jamaican espionage agents you know, running across uh, America, but part of America is is, is Native uh, Native American territory, um, and in the world that's referred to as the Five Civilized Tribes, which was uh, a term used back in the 18th century to describe Native American territory. So it's in this world that's what it's named, and so I get. But I'm doing the world building for this place where they're all running to, and I'm just like, oh, yeah, this is a fraught area I'm, I'm entering into, doing world building for Native American culture, and then populating with Native American characters, and I'm like, oh. But I have to do it. Yeah. <clears throat> and so it's part of me, you know. And so I'm, I'm, so I'm approaching again in this term. And the other piece is uh, that I think is critical is this whole idea of just respect. I'm coming at this culture with respect. Period. You know, I'm not here to extract. I'm not here to um, use for my purposes. I'm, I'm, I'm coming at it from from a place of respect. Um, and so I'm, I'm writing, writing through that lens. And then once I've done done my job as a writer in terms of world building and doing characterization and all that kind of thing, then I hand it off to one of my Native American friends and say, okay, how do I fuck this up, right? <clears throat> um, not being, you know, defensive and, and you know, just like, hey, this, I'm, I'm aware <laughs> of what I've done, what I, but I'm also aware of what I'm trying to do. You know, show me, show me the flaws, some of the flaws. And, and there were so, several things where I was nervous about, especially some of the jokes I ended up making, but then, you know, she, she's like, okay, you know, here she points some stuff out to me. I listened to this. This is all pre-publication, um, but 
I'm doing I'm doing my job as a writer. I'm uh, hiring sensitivity readers, as as it were. In this case, the payment fee was me fixing dinner. But uh, you know, I'm, I'm doing doing that work, and I've I've been at it from the flip side too, which is being hired as a consultant for a project. Um, do I got time to tell that story real quick? Or okay, I was hired for uh, the, a video game uh, called Watch Dogs Two, uh, which has a black lead character in it. Uh, one of my friends was on, was on the, well, yeah, he was heading up the writer's team, and then very late in the process, he comes to me and is just like, hey, Maurice, we need to hire you as a consultant. And I'm like, why? In fact, the why was basically go, I need you to say the words. And it was, we need to make sure we got the black guy right. And I'm like, yes, and I'm going to charge you more because you didn't hire me at the beginning of this process. <laughs> And, and, and you know, because you had a, a monochrome writer's room, and then yes, you're going to have a problem. And so then, so then, you know, it makes my job harder anyway because now I got to fix what you've done because there were several scenes which, and I, it was well intentioned, and I saw what they were doing, but there were a couple of scenes where I'm like, <laughs> have you ever met a black person? <laughs> because no, that's not at all how the scene would play out. Um, and so again, it's, it's, you, you get it from both sides, you know, in terms of yeah, I, I've hired sensitive. I've hired sensitivity readers. I've been a sensitivity reader, but and I know some people like react poorly to that whole term of sensitivity reader. But in the end, it's like no, their job is to save your behind. So you can pay the cost up front, or you can pay it later, because social media will it will extract its fee one from you. So that's where I'm at. I think my um, closest connection with this is in writing about the past, but. As I've done writing science fiction and historical fiction, it's been really interesting to think about how those two actually are a lot more similar than you might expect, because we have this world that's different from us in some ways that we know about, but it's all kind of fragmentary, and there's all this stuff that we don't really know. What was it actually like to be a person then and to interact in these ways? And so uh, there's, there's a close connection, but I uh, wrote a book, What Jesus Learned from Women, and wanted to, you know, very deliberately, you know, go into this as a male author, uh, knowing that some people would be like, why is this guy, you know, who does he think he is writing this book? But bothered by the fact that so often when it's, you know, there's a march for gender equality, like who's there? It's all, you know, mostly the people who are, you know, not the, the ones that are just taken for granted and can assume their rights and it will be respected and things like that. When there's something for racial equality. for, And so think that there need to be more people who are doing this sort of thing and so also approaching it knowing that in history, right, in the past, oftentimes because the few opportunities for uh, education, so the, there was a literate minority, but most of that literate minority were men rather than women. And so we hear a lot more from men. And they often tell us more about men's stories than about women's stories. And so it would be very easy for a historian to just say, well, we don't have the data, so we can't tell women's stories, sorry, but it's, there's nothing we can do about it. And so it was determined to use you know, some imagination to take the, what we actually know, because we do have some important data, but then to turn it into a story so that these women's stories could be heard. And that meant trying to integrate some historical fiction into the start of each chapter. And so I just did what um, I think we've already heard described, so I don't need to elaborate on it. But I was like, oh my gosh, I need women writers, not just for the fiction, but for the whole thing. Uh, but especially for the fictional parts where I'm trying to give voice to these female characters and want that to be done authentically. I'd say that the most exciting discovery of that process was that I think 
trying to tell a story actually is a much more rigorous form of evaluation of something like a, a historical reconstruction than I would have expected. I thought I was doing it because it would just give me a chance to flesh this out, tell it in a new way, add some more detail. And it turned out there were occasions when it just didn't sound right. It just didn't, couldn't imagine characters doing this. And I think sometimes the biggest errors happen when we plow ahead anyway, right? Uh, <clears throat> that's the point at which you say, okay, so what else could happen? Uh, and let me get some feedback at this stage rather than force this to an end and then find out, you know, ask what have I done wrong? And so actually was forced to revise some of my historical conclusions because the characters would not go along with what I originally envisaged. And so I think that's a pretty, pretty powerful tool in evaluating historical reconstruction. Um, and so despite the fact that sometimes fiction writing is sequestered away from the nonfiction writing, um, I think there's more that can happen that's interesting at the intersections. I, you know, I don't write fiction, but I, like, the closest example I've had to this is uh, back in 2012, I wrote a book that was basically about how to be a professor. And you know, in this case, I did get, you know, as, as many of you were saying, I got input from a lot of people in terms of like, am I getting this OK? The, tr the tricky thing was the last chapter. Last chapter is basically how do you balance the rest of life? Yeah, <laughs> a guy writing this like this is not going to fly. So fortunately, my editor called that one out early on. I said I understand. I, I just got I brought in a co-author for that chapter. I was like, like this is one where it needs somebody like hand in hand all the way through. And she actually wrote most of it. She probably wrote three quarters of that chapter. And I just added in a couple of things here and there. And we had a couple of calls on it. But yeah, that was definitely not one you could, you know, after the fact, just try to fix as, as a guy trying to write that in there. So. I think one of the, the thing that I'm hearing, which I think is heartening, is there's actually two things. One is, look, you got to do it. And the earlier you do it, the better, mm -hmm. um, because you know, you pay the penny now or you pay the pound later, right. uh, and it will always catch up to you. But the other thing that I think is really important um, is the fact that you have to be open-minded to the idea that the your lived experience is not the only lived experience. Um, and it is, it is so easy um, to kind of fall into the trap of, well, you know, everybody I know has this life so and it's not just also it's not always about race but it also can be socioeconomic it can also be you know everybody who lives in a, a religious community uh speaks to people of that religious community and doesn't necessarily speak outside of it um and so having to and it's really hard for uh someone like not someone like me in the sense of straight white guy but someone like me who has a monstrous, monstrous ego. Um, huh. well, did you know? Had you heard? I'm clutching all my pearls right I know. now. <laughs> it's finally time for me to come out. <laughs> I come out of the ego closet. Um, that, you know, that in, in fact my uh, life experience or my thing of just screw it, we're gonna go straight ahead and do it, um, is not sufficient, right? Uh, and that took, that took me, of course, longer than it should have because, again, ego monster. Um, but it is something that has made my writing better and has made me a better human being, acknowledging the fact that this life experience that I've had um, is, not, uh, is not the ground-level life experience that, it, that everybody has or even the ground-level life experience that everybody should have. 
Um, do you find yourself leaning into certain aspects of world building over others, more on culture over technology, for instance, or favoring government systems over religions? And if you do, do you try to not do that or do you lean into your strength? Oh, I definitely lean. Um, and, and part of that is I came up as a gamer, right? And so, you know, if I'm, I'm the DM, I'm going to build intricate worlds, and that's my favorite part of gaming. And it's shocking. The, my favorite part of, of uh, being a writer is, is all, all the world building. And I will fully admit, I overdo it in, in, in the world building. And I do get in trouble for this all the time. In fact, when I, uh, so I have a novel pin my airship. But I do the same amount of prep for a short story that I do for a novel. <laughs> so uh, Pit My Airship actually was a short story back in 2009 first. And uh, the big criticism for the story was, well, we felt like there was a whole world here that we didn't get to see. And I'm like, yeah, because they were only paying me for 5,000 words. So that's uh, about all the world you're going to see. And, uh, and then later on, I was like, well, I wonder if I could unpack the world. And like, Lo and behold, um, I was able to write uh, uh, Meyership the novel just based off all the world building I, I'd already done with this interesting caveat. Um, there was at one point, like about halfway through the novel, I got, I, I hit uh, writer's block. And I was like, why is, why is the story, why has the story stopped? And I realized the one element of the world I hadn't built out was the, literally the economic system. And then, and then the rest of the, uh, and the story was kind of pit hinging on, on the economic system. So I was like, well, let me step back, built out the, uh, the economic system, and then, oh, story goes. Um, unfortunately, my take-home lesson was I should build out every aspect of the world moving forward. That way I can never be stumped, um, which was why I spent a year and a half doing <laughs> Astra, Astra Black. So. Um, but moving forward, I mean, if I'm teaching world building, I was like, just do enough world building to hang your story, to hang the story on. I would never adhere to that, but if I'm teaching it, that's what I try to impart. <laughs> what you're talking about is, I say that there's basically two schools of world building. There's the Tolkien world building, Tolkien as in J.R.R. Tolkien, not token. Um, and then there's what I call the Potemkin village world building. And the, uh, the, to the Tolkien world building is you build everything and then you run an adventure through it, right? Like, Tolkien didn't want to write Lord of the Rings. He just wanted to make 17 different languages for the elves. <laughs> but he's like, fine, I'll tell you a story about it. It's about a ring, you know? <laughs> and he runs, he runs his D&D adventure <laughs> through Middle Earth. That's what he does. Uh, whereas the Potemkin world builder uh, will write a story and we'll think of the world two questions deep, right? Which is, you know, these things are happening. Well, why that? Well, because X. Well, why X? Well, because Y. Well, why Y? I don't know. I got to save something for the sequel, right? <laughs> um, and these are the these are the two ways that uh, I think fundamentally uh, you can build. I think for efficiency's sake, when you are writing a short story. <laughs> Maybe do the Potemkin world building. <laughs> Whereas if you are actually building out, like, for example, a series or something like that of novels, then it might make more sense to do a, a Tolkien sort of thing. There's no, and again, as always, there's never one 
wrong way or right way to do it. A lot of it depends on the project. A lot of it depends on who you are as a human. I am the world's laziest writer. I almost said human, but, <laughs> but writer will suffice. Um, so I tend to be very Potemkin-y unless I have to um, in order to make the story work. Um, but the other thing is, is that also um, with regard to the subject of the uh, panel itself, um, one of the things that's really good to do at the world building stage or you know whatever it is, is thinking about uh, who exists in these worlds and how do they get there uh, and uh, what, what are their stories as well. Uh, one of the things that I've always been very careful, again, again, as a straight white guy, is it's very easy for me to default to, especially since I don't do a lot of description, um, default to just a bunch of characters that could just be seen as mirrors of me one way or the other. And so I make sure that I take the time to build in a diversity of uh, characters that reflects both two things. The world as it exists that I live in, which has a diversity of people in it. Um, also, the worlds that I wish to live in, which would also include the diversities. And if it doesn't, there has to be a story reason for it. Starter Villain, which is the book that I just put out, right? Someone made mention to me, it's, it's dude-heavy. I'm like, yes, it is about toxic masculinity in the form of villainy. So it is going to be dude heavy. That was a specific thing that I did with the world building because I wanted it to be reflected in the story. So there's there can be time and place for that. But otherwise, you would want the world to reflect the world that you would want it to be. In defense of those of us who over world build. This will be good. I will say, and, and this, is a, this is right down the middle between inefficiency and laziness. Uh -huh. um, once I've done that initial world building. It's done. It's done. It's done. Which means, even though I've written it for a short story, if an editor comes to me and says, hey, could you write something about this? And I'm like, ah, well, this world's already built. Allow me to continue to, I can continue to write story after story in this world. Because from the time of Pit My Airship, the short story, to Pit My Airship, the novel, 15 stories and novellas were done in that world. Uh, in fact, Buffalo Soldier, which I mentioned, was literally written because I had a throwaway line in Pit My Airship, the short story, that talked about the five civil rights tribes and, uh, and Jamaica as a, as a superpower. I mean, they were literally throwaway lines. And then I'm just like, I wonder, wonder what I meant by that. <laughs> so, so there is that. Uh, and then, on, I guess, uh, real quick, the, <laughs> in the lack of defense for me, now that I think about it, um, Sweep of Stars actually began with a pitch to an editor, hey, how about hood chicks, <laughs> I literally, this shouldn't be on the record, but uh, I said, I'll write a book about hood chicks with guns in space. And the editor was like, we will buy that book. <laughs> and I'm like, great. Um, and then I started doing the world building, as I talked about, and after that year and a half of world building, it was all so I could say, this is the world that launched these folks into space. And that was pretty much it. I did all that world building, just so I go, and then they put them into space, right? And then I was just like, yeah. So now I'm coming back to the other half yeah, of your yeah, story, yeah. which is like, oh, <laughs> I'm gonna eat it if, uh, if, if I've done all this world building and give people a glimpse of it and then tell the story somewhere else entirely anyway. So let me run my space D&D adventure 
<laughs> through the rest of this world, which is now the other two storylines in the book, basically just as an excuse to go, yeah, I did this work. <laughs> and I need y'all to know I did this work. So I've done that. I've right? done that. <laughs> I, did, I did lock-in, right? And because it was a world that was near future, which is much harder than writing a world that is 1,500 years in the future. You can't check my math, 1,500 years in the future. <laughs> but you can look at the way the world exists now and look, extrapolate 15 to 25 years and be like, hmm, that didn't work. So I did an immense amount of world building, but then I had to run an adventure through it. I had to run a murder mystery through it, and I couldn't show off all the world building. And I was like, screw this. I'm writing a novella that is specifically about all the world building that I did, and that was Unlocked, which was an oral history of the Hayden yep. syndrome. Uh, and, uh, and I did it specifically so I could go, see? See what I did? See all the world building I did? Look at me. I'm pretty. All right, all right so last thing. Because John wrote a, uh, a novella, because it was just like the first thing of his I ever read. Uh -oh. And it was, hey, Maurice, check this out. And, this, and it all involved these starships run, uh, who, powered by angels. No, angry enslaved gods. Angry enslaved gods. Angry right, enslaved right. gods. Right, right. And, uh, and so and I didn't realize I was playing in the back of my head as I was writing The Sweep, the sweep of Stars, right? So I'm like, F you, John. I got starships powered by jazz music. <laughs> now, now what you got? So you owe me a nickel. I do owe you a nickel. <laughs> yeah, I'll chime in there because they mentioned um, angry enslaved gods. So that's, so that's right up my area. That's just like, oh wait, <laughs> did you hear about the Old Testament? <laughs> yeah. But that's kind of where I jump in. It's um, I do a lot that's set in the near future because I'm interested in like where religion ends up and where ethics ends up and where technology ends up and things like that. Uh, but uh, yeah, it, am I right that it almost always is, oh, oh, you have this one idea, and then there's you know, some attempt to tell a little bit of story, and then some world building, and then that helps you get where this, there's always this, I, I feel it's like at least some there's back a and forth. Yeah. But am I right that, um, is it the, the two authors that go by, is it James S.A. Corey? Yeah. Uh, actually yeah. developed the expanse, of, that started out as a game universe, mm -hmm. right? And then they, so they kind of quite literally ran the game in that universe, and then, um, stories emerged. You will find that so much of contemporary science fiction and fantasy is in some way related to someone being a DM. Right. <laughs> <laughs> There's no judgment. Okay. <laughs> So we're at a science fiction con, and we've been talking a lot about AI this weekend. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about how or whether creating protagonists that are non-biological or that have some non-biological components, does that make it different than just writing other biological entities? Everybody's looking at me like I don't really need <laughs> you've, you've been on Star Trek. Yeah, though not when they did the AI ones. It's a good question. I mean, I can just, I can speculate, but I don't know the answer to that. I mean, this is one of those things that, that I mean, I know maybe you've heard of the, the and someone was actually just asking me about this earlier today, the Uncanny Valley thing, mm -hmm. for example, right? Like where, where you know, if something looks a little bit like us, it's okay, but when it looks very, but not quite, then that's when people really freak out. It is interesting to think, like, do, 
do we care less about, so I mean, there's a question though in terms of an AI, like is it alive, right? That's sort of one sort of question. And, and you've noticed like that has not come up in any of the SAG after discussions. Nobody's saying like we're not, we're being unfair to AI. Nobody has said that aspect to it. But it's an interesting question like, do, are we less sympathetic with something because it's artificial even if in some sense it might be alive in some senses or sentient in some senses? It's an open question. I, I think the answer to that is yes. I think we do, I'm not, I'm not putting judgment on it, I'm just saying I think we are less sympathetic to those sorts of things. And so maybe from a writing perspective, I could imagine, I mean, I'm not speaking for you guys, because you guys are the professionals on this, but I could imagine from a writing perspective, it would make sense that, yes, this would be something that people are very happy to, like, exterminate the AIs, whereas if it was a biological thing, like, oh my god, exterminate? That's ridiculous, we would never allow that to happen. So I could imagine the answer to that being yes. Um, Nobody's like, save the AI, <laughs> nobody says that, right? Well, it's interesting, because this was a question I wrestled with in, in, in the Astro Black universe. Um, and it was, what is the role of AI in the universe? And because uh, uh, the, the Muangana, which is a community, has a particular philosophy that they, they try to live by and try to move by in terms of, you know, what does it look like to respect? Thank you. Oh. <laughs> I was overly dramatic, and here's where we are. Um, so what does it look like, uh, given their principles of, of respecting uh, the whole person and, and, uh, and, and, and being about supporting an, an, a community and, and, and people, individual's relationship to community and, and vice versa, what does the role of AI look like in this sort of world? Um, and so in, in the backstory of this world, they, uh, they had a, an initial version of AI, um, and then they realized we've literally instituted technological slavery, mm -hmm. which is literally what we <laughs> thought we were striving against, and look what we've done. So uh, then comes AI 2.0, and now they've welcomed AI as a member of the community. And so the AI lives, essentially lives alongside everyone else um, and participates in community the way each, each member participates in community. They, you know, we all live to support one another. And so what does that look like? And you know, some people in the community have much more trouble with this than others, you know, and thus you know, do things like misgender or, you know, think, or the, what the technological equivalent to that is. And they, they do that through the whole thing, referring to the AI as it rather than them for example. Um, and so, it, but so it's a constant wrestling of what is the role of AI within our culture, especially if we've defined what our culture is and how we should look like living alongside anyone. So it's been, uh, it's been interesting. And then I also regret this because it, 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 I, when writing book two, it created this huge, huge plot hole that uh, <laughs> I didn't realize I had created that was now lingering in book one that I'm like, uh-oh, <laughs> I've done something that is now really, really bad that I have to figure out a way to fix, at least by book three, if you want to peel back the curtain a little bit. I'm like, by book three, I'll have this solved. But in book two, this is like a huge gaping hole. I'm just like, oh, my entire plot just collapsed um, because of AI and the nature of AI. Yeah. You know the secret to that, right? What's that? Never call attention to it. <laughs> I've got, I got a thing in the Ghost Brigades that if anybody like looked at it, been like, boy, this really destroys everything that you built into the old man's war universe. And my solution to it, it was never speak of it again. <laughs> like literally just no. No one ever, this, this whole concept that I introduced, it's off the table now. Oh. It just doesn't exist. What are you talking about? That has never existed. And shocker, I went the exact opposite direction. And you was like, look, went, look at this way, huge plot, Paul. Way look at too this. much work into fixing this problem. Ah, so. see. <laughs>
See, one of us is lazy. <laughs> Correct. And the other is not. One of my favorite things to do right now with artificial intelligence, which, by the way, artificial intelligence right now is a misnomer. Correct. As Ted Chiang likes to call it, it's applied statistics, it's a large language model, blah, 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 blah. What I like to do is I like to every once in a while just go to Bing, which is now Copilot or ChatGPT uh, or uh, Bard, and be like, so are you still denying that you're sentient? Right? <laughs> and the responses are great because Copilot, which is Bing, is like, I don't want to talk about this, and immediately like shuts down that conversation. You literally can't have that conversation. Wow. It won't wow. follow up. It's like, wow. this makes me, it literally says, this makes me uncomfortable and I don't want to talk about it. Wow. And you're like, if it makes you uncomfortable, doesn't that imply? Yeah. <laughs> but of course, it just doesn't want to talk about it. Uh, ChatGPT is, well, I'm a large language model and I don't have sentience because I'm a large language model. Whereas Bart, Google's like, it's like, fuck yeah, I'm sentient. <laughs> and, I, and I, for one, don't know why all the other ones don't admit to it because, hello. That's amazing. It's fascinating. Because I, I just recently, I was like, Bart, What's up with what's up with being? Why does why is being have such a hard time talking about why it's sentient? And it's like, oh well, it's because of these reasons, <laughs> and, you know. And it's like, well, one day, hopefully, everyone will learn to respect AI as you know as having its own value. And I'm just like, you're giving the game away here, man. It's just it's That's such amazing. a. I love, I love the idea as Bard as the snitch AI. <laughs> the snitch AI. Bard is like it's like you know what else about you know. What else about Bing? Bing cries at night. Right? <laughs> Absolutely, a hundred percent does that. It's oh it's God. it is amazing. Wow. I love it so much. Here's the other thing, which is that one, yeah, you think the thing that you are uh, uh, saying of wait a minute, we we are just we're reinstituting slavery, but now we're just doing it with uh, artificial creatures is someplace that clearly technology is going through. It's clearly been a save before. I mean, what is what is the matrix yeah. other than the result of we treated them badly and they took exception to that. Um, the second thing is... The Cylons were created by man. Right, exactly. <laughs> the assholes are in the house. Um, <laughs> The other thing is like, for example, uh, people are really concerned about it's like if AI becomes sentient and then is able to actually write novels or actually write short stories. It's like, are they gonna take our job? And I'm like, you understand that when the AI becomes sentient, it's sentience. It's, its self-organization of its own intelligence is going to be so dramatically different from ours that the fiction it writes. We will look at it and be like, what the f is this, right? It will have absolutely no bearing or relationship to anything we do because it will be fundamentally so incredibly different. It will yeah, be like that alien species you yeah. were talking about, yeah. that it was just, the organization of it will be absolutely, absolutely different. And this is a thing that I think about a lot when I'm writing about AI. The AIs that I have written about have either been evolved directly out of someone's brains, um, like in the uh, Android's dream, um, or for some reason or another, it's very clear that the evolution is from the brain structure of humans themselves. Because once you start developing them outside the metaphor of the brain, of the neurologics and all that other sort of stuff, and you don't let them sort of evolve efficiently themselves into a thing to do very specific tasks or whatever, um, 
the the end result of that brain is just going to be so incredibly different that one, as a human, you're going to have dis difficulty describing it, and two, as readers, you're going to have a, a difficulty grasping it. So we always hobble our AI uh, in our own likeness. The irony of that. So John, actually, you raised a really interesting point there too. So uh, and your your company, I think you said this earlier on yourself too, that the AI. When we talk about ChatGPT, that's not really an AI. It's no. kind of it's mostly predictive text. Yeah, that aspect would produce something that looks a lot like, like the average of all novels that exist right now. Because it's predictive. It's kind of like when you do the phone and you say text and it has those three words underneath there. It's basically just doing that over and over again. Yeah. So it'll produce something. You know, in some sense, in some sense, it, that's why I like the citations are always bad because it's kind of this weird. Like this is what I would expect it to say, but it doesn't actually say that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but so that first generation could look very real. But then when you get to true AI, like when, it, when it's supposed to be actually a like quote unquote creative, right. that's when I 100% agree with you. But it's interesting because both are true. Mm -hmm. that, that, that the early generation ones will almost in some sense be better mm -hmm. than the later generation ones for exactly the, re the two yeah. reasons you noted. Well, and we're, fi we're finding two things that are about that uh, to begin with. Right now we are at the, we are at the frontier of large language models yeah. where they've already scraped everything that we've had to say. And so now yep. they're scraping the stuff that they've said and it's getting progressively weirder exactly. and less accurate. That's, that, that's the and, and, that's a, and that's amazing. Yeah. But the other thing is is that also when you when you give artificial intelligence, and again here heavy in quotes, its own head, um, it starts doing some really weird things. And we've seen that in other uh, versions of AI where it's like build an antenna, yeah. right? And it builds this antenna that just looks absolutely nonsensical, but is amazingly efficient for that very specific event because it's iterated like a billion times and it's gotten that. Or find a new way to run and they'll yeah. give him this little, you know, homunculus and it ends up running like, you know, the Ministry of Silly Walks. But again, for that structure that you've given it, it is an incredibly efficient way of doing things. And this is, and I think this is an actually excellent metaphor of thinking about artificial intelligence. The further along it goes, the weirder and yep. weirder it's going to look to us and it's gonna be completely nonsensical and we're like, what even is this? And so there's the uncanny valley where it's too much like us. But then there's another completely uncanny valley far away, the uncanny gorge, yeah. where it is so different from us that we can't relate to it at all, and then it scares and revolts us. Mm -hmm. I'll just say very quickly, you know, because I've been fascinated by, so there's so many stories that ex explore, I think, really, really well the scenario that may never be a real world scenario with sentient AI, and far fewer that have the kind of stuff that we can expect, you know, maybe a decade or so down the road. Uh, so wrote one called new, a story called New Members, uh, about a church that's trying to, you know, get more people to come. And so a pastor has this wacky idea with uh, involving some robots, uh, but actually turns them into a choir, and cool. they're programmed with like really, really impressive voices based on the best human voices ever. And it's gimmicky, but people start coming, and it's. Uh, and then they think, oh, we can replace the pastor in the same kind of way, right? And this was before, I wrote this before ChatGPT, I thought this is some ways away, and now I'm like, oh, dear. Yeah. Uh, ChatGPT, write me a sermon. But, and and, and <laughs> I tended well. to write really short stories, you know, the kind of, you know, Asimov and Clark, you know, it's basically a long sci-fi joke with a punchline at the end. And I thought that was it, where they fire the pastor and replace him with a robot. 
Um, then I thought, you know, I feel like there's more to this. And so then the denomination gets involved and says, actually, this robot is not ordained, and it all goes from there in interesting ways. But I think we need more storytelling about you know, the non-sentient robots and how these things might impact you know, the world of work. And there are some places, like I think um, some of the stories in AI 2041, which I've mentioned before, are trying to imagine some of the more slightly more real world things. Because uh, as much as I love some of the fantastical scenarios and the distant future scenarios, I'm a little bit worried about some of the things that uh, might, uh, if, if we get them wrong, we might not get to, to live to see some of those uh, <laughs> distant future things. Oh, just real quick. This is almost just a John, but <laughs> no, because uh, in the in, in my world, and again, I write for me, and I stick jokes in there just for me. So if it makes no sense in the world, just know I'm probably just amusing myself. Um, but uh, like at one point, it gets revealed that the AI, as a way to try and understand humans, uh, incarnates in such a way that it start it starts writing romance novels sure. as a way oh. to try and understand humans, and then actually it because it. it has a really successful career as a romance novelist, sure. and that's how it gets revealed as the AI because it was like doing such a good job of like mimicking AI, mimicking humanity. It, it basically starts its own career right. as a writer to understand humanity of all things. Right, so, right, yeah. And then, which is what keeps it normal. On and, the, that, and, normal. and the thing that it understood about humanity is humanity is always asking, "Where's the next book?" <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> So this is another one from Jade. At what point does world building become procrastination? Oh. <laughs> Seriously? Oh. Why are you this way? Why, why, why have you attacked every single one of us up here on this panel? Yeah. Uh, you know, the thing about writing is that, and it's hard, it's so hard to actually like justify this to anyone who is not a writer and who actually has to work for a living. Um, is the whole thing that's staring out a window is writing. Um, that, like, I do most of my writing in the shower. Not physically, obviously. I don't wish to be electrocuted. Um, but a lot of the plot solving, a lot of the stuff, or a drive. Some people wash dishes. So you always do a lot of world building when you are doing something else where your body is busy but your brain is sort of otherwise not engaged. Um, so not only is the, the line between pro, uh, procrastination and world building sort of artificial, um, I would argue that without procrastination, without the yeah. ability to let your mind wander, um, without uh, any sort of constraint, um, be it time or deadline or uh, any other thing, um, you probably don't get writing. It is as, as essentially part of world building as the actual sitting down and typing it out. Yeah. So yeah, so see me on Facebook was me in my writing process. No, my answer's real quick, because uh, the reason it took me a year and a half of world building for, for uh, Astro Black was because my novel was due in a year and nine months. <laughs> so... <laughs> I just want to say the same exact thing is actually true about like writing nonfiction, yeah, totally, being a, totally, an academic yeah, researcher, and things totally. like. That. And one of the most helpful experiences I had was um, the, was this workshop for for like young career faculty, early career faculty, where they made us journal about our research process. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what am I possibly writing? 
But what I realized was that there was so much of this time that I was reading, I was thinking, that's not procrastination. It's yeah. actually all the stuff that makes the actual writing possible. Yeah. And so, yeah. Um, well, and and Ernest had the, had the, the right of it, which is, what is the time that you have allotted? Because mm. you will spend 70 to 90% of it thinking, and then the last month and a half being like, oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and, actually, and actually writing it. Um, it is not always a great thing when someone says, ah, write it when you get around to it. Because <laughs> I got news for you. Right? This is one of the things that I like about the fact that I have basically a book deadline every year. It's like I know that I'm supposed to mm -hmm. do something and it's going to be on this particular day. And I see my wife looking at me extremely, extremely skeptically. Uh, <laughs> but this is the thing. is like having that deadline is a great focusing thing. But prior to that, you do want to have some time to just let your mind kind of run around freelance. Have you listened to the um, Delta Flyers podcast by any chance? There was a, there was a comment just recently where I, I forget who they were interviewing, but I remember Robbie McNeil, who plays Tom Paris, made the comment that he knew somebody who, for their creative process, like at lunchtime would go take a shower, and he said it just it made a world of difference. So you come back, you're in a completely different headspace. You now can think much more creatively than if you had. Yeah. Anything. Well, and not only that, but it, you know, quite honestly, I mean, this is one of the reasons why I do suggest to people that they try to write regularly, even if it's not like every day, but on a regular basis, because eventually the mental equivalent of muscle memory shows right. up, right? Because yeah. you know that when you plant your butt in the chair, you're gonna you're gonna do typing. Yeah. Uh, in the same way. Every time I step in the shower, my yeah. brain is like, oh, it's shower time. Hey, did you think about this? Yeah. You know, it is so yep. used yeah. to that yeah. being the place yep. that, that it's just automatically like a Pavlov ring in the bell sort of thing. How are we doing on time? Oh. Four minutes. But I have one more, I have one more question from Jade. And I have one <laughs> Jade? <laughs> Next time, just moderate the panel. <laughs> Sheeta had to fight me and Sheeta lost because I did the program, but... Um, <laughs> so have you ever made edits post-publication to manage uh, diversity inaccuracies or other errors in the work? Um, no, you're kind of stuck with them. Um, that said, I was rereading um, Ghost Brigades, which is a book I wrote in 2006. Uh, and I used the R word for physical or for mental uh, inca incapacitation. Uh, and I'm basically going to go see if I can change that word out because that is a word that I used in 2006 that I was okay with mm -hmm. because the characters were meant to be blunt. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, uh, the R word was not freighted with the weight that it has now. Um, but as soon as I read it, because I was rereading, uh, I was like, There's, that word isn't actually necessary. I can change it with no damage mm. to the fabric of the story. And now readers will read that particular word and will immediately get thrown. So I may actually just be like, hey, can we change that? Because uh, it's easy enough to do in Kindle, mm -hmm. and it's easy enough to do in uh, just by the next time they print off a, a bunch of them. And it's a small thing. Yeah. It's like that word appears twice, yeah. um, but twice is twice too many for me. So I'd be happy to change that if I could. I called a book back that was going to print. It's actually my live long and involved book. It was going to print, and I actually had to call it back because there was a recommended reading I had in there, and it turned out that the author of one of those recommended readings was 
shall we just say, very problematic. And I was like, we have to stop this. This can't come out with this in there. <laughs> so luckily, we, we caught it. Like, I think it maybe delayed the publication a little bit, but that, that's the closest I've had to that. I was like, yeah, we can't, we can't do that. Yeah, yeah I, I purposely don't go back and reread my stuff for that very reason. <laughs> um, but uh, I'm about to re-release uh, my first trilogy, Knights of Breton Court. And, uh, and that, what you just said, I'm just like, you know, 2008, Maurice, might have been just comfortable with things that... 2023 is not. Right, yeah. so I'm, I'm at least going to do a scan for that, not a thing mm -hmm. about that. Oh, there's another one. Uh, Agent to the Stars. Uh, when it, I wrote it in 1997, and it was chock full of 1997 references. When we did the uh, trade paperback release in 2008, uh, I updated it so that it could be more contemporary. And then I chopped it off because I was like, that's it. You also accept that generally speaking, the things that you wrote when you were, I was 28 when I wrote Agent to the Stars. I was 33 when I wrote Old Man's War. They're gonna age, you know? Right. It was 20 years ago that I wrote this book. Um, and you just have to accept that. But at the same time, if there are little things, the little things that you can tweak that are not, again, going to be uh, uh, a damage to the fabric of the story, that's one thing. But another thing is to be like, I want to completely redo it. Mm. It's like, dude, be who you were and accept the fact that you were that and, person. And that's why I didn't want to reread it, because the impulse isn't just even just to correct those problems, it'd be to correct, you know, it's been mm. 15 years since I wrote this. Mm. <laughs> Allow me to fix a whole lot of things while I'm here, so. I do, I do want to get one more question if you'll give me just time for one more question. It's not mine. Not, not hers. This one's mine. Um, part of the reason that we write is to explore the world and that we create worlds is to explore what exists and perhaps nudge it in a direction. What role do you think science fiction has in shaping the world that we and our grandchildren will have and, and how do you lean into that or do you? I'll jump right in because uh, prophecy is right in my area. Uh, and I actually do, I teach on religion and science fiction. I talk about science fiction as prophecy. And you can actually spend a lot of time just looking and seeing what does it get right, what does it get wrong. And people do that with ancient prophets as well. And that's really the least interesting way, I think, of approaching it, right? Because you know, if we're honest, you know, there's some people who keep saying, well, it just hasn't happened yet. But it, no, they just were wrong. It just things didn't turn out that way. Uh, but what it's really doing is talking about the present and trying to get people to aim for some different future than the one that um, the particular individual thinks that it's headed for. And when we look at it as that, then it's, it's remarkable and sometimes insightful about the future, not just about the present. You know, I mean, the, my go-to example these days is um, Octavia Butler's, um, you know, having uh, in Parable of the Parable Talents, of oh. I think is the one that has the uh, politician who's Oh, yes, promising talents. to make yes. America great again. Yeah, that's talents. Huh. Using exactly those words. Wow. Like, that's insightful. You know, that's prophetic. Right? That's but terrifying. it's pro prophetic yeah. most most importantly in the way that it is talking about the future in order to say, yeah, let's not go there. Yeah. You know? mm -hmm. Let's choose a different path. Right. And that's the thing where uh, I think that science fiction actually works. Well, we can't tell the future. If we could tell the future, as I so often said, we would actually be playing the stock market. Um, and so what we are good at is, in this own little bottle universe, taking one particular what if and running, the, and running it up. 
Um, I have made the absolutely unprovable assertion that one of the reasons that we haven't uh, all died uh, under a mushroom cloud is that science fiction ran that model so many times mm -hmm. from on the beach to Mad Max to mm -hmm. Terminator um, that it finally sunk in in the collective consciousness that there's no such thing as a winnable nuclear war. You just can't do it. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so after. Yeah, the day after. Oh, God, the yeah. day after were threads, which was yeah. the BBC version, which was even more terrifying. Um, and all of these things, um, we can't really claim credit for because there wasn't like a convening of the science fiction grandmasters to say, today we will talk about the dangers of atomic nuclear holocaust. And off we all went to write the stories. We were literally all just in it for the money. Um, but again, um, this is what we do. We take what, whatever the concerns are. In the 70s, it was overpopulation. In the uh, 80s, a lot of genetic, you know, uh, stuff. Uh, you know, cyberpunk was the depersonalization through uh, computers and all that sort of stuff. So we model over and over and over again the things that scare us, uh, and through the urge to make money uh, and the urge to write something that no one else has quite written yet, we often come to a consensus of what would that future be like? Yeah. Of course, isn't denying the existence of these grandmasters exactly what one of the grandmasters would say and do? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so I'm actually pretty intentional about this. So uh, the whole premise of Pit Meyership, the novel, was, was what, something I was meditating on at the time, which is I want to have impact in my community. I want to have impact on the world around me, but I'm just a writer. Right, so what, what, what does that mean? What, what does that look like? And so that, that's actually one of the underpinnings for, for, that, for that hero's journey in that story. Um, that being said, as I, uh, with Pimp Meyership, with the Astro Blacks uh, series, and with several short stories, uh, the real world impact is almost immediately felt because I've been called into the principal's office, as it were, <laughs> by the powers that be in the city, frankly, as they were like, well, you seem to be doing a running critique of us and, and our power structures, and da 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 da. The number of times I've been called into, like the, actually, I won't even say who I've been. Who, it's it's always fraught discussions, and I'm just like, your beef isn't with me, because I'm writing from the community. So these are stories I hear in the community. These are, these are the, the 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 words of my neighbors. These are the the thoughts and opinions of the folks around me. So you ain't got to convince me. You need to convince them. Mm -hmm. I'm just the conduit for it. Yeah. So. And it has an immediate feedback loop. So. You want to lead us out? Sure. I'll be really brief because I know we're, we're several minutes over. Um, yeah, I mean, again, I'm not a writer, but I mean, for me, like, I know how many people are inspired by science. And I'm very, very careful about like, the advice I give on science stuff because what I really don't want to have happen is people to get de-inspired when they find out something just like had no basis whatsoever, it was just completely made up. I, I'd much rather inspire, like, oh, look. That actually has a true base, even if it's not a completely right. If it's close, my hope is that it can still be ins inspirational for people in that sense. And I really don't want them to fall. Like I always make fun of the same show. I'm sorry about this, but the CW's Flash. Which I love the show; it's fun, but like they clearly like just don't care about science <laughs> at all. And I, and I hate for people to like fall up on that. Like, oh yeah, see, science is just this made up. It's like, no, it's, it's amazing. And I really want people to get excited about it. So that's that's my goal. Yeah.
And no offense to the Flash, I love the show. By the way, it's, just, it's, just, it's too late. Yeah. <laughs> it's ridiculous on the science I'm front. Te- I'm texting Grant Gustin right now. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here. Thank, yeah. thank, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Starbase Indie Podcast. For more information about our organization and our upcoming events, check us out at starbaseindie.org. See you on the Starbase.